Our scripture reading for today is from 2 Corinthians 4, 7-12, and 16-18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. But we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and monetary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever heard it said, God won't give you more than you can handle? I don't believe it. I don't believe it at all. Um, In fact, I'm here today to tell you that God will give you more than you can handle. And he'll do it on purpose. Uh, Just as an aside, by way of quick explanation, when, when people say that to you, people say that in the church, people say that I think outside the church, oh, you know, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. I mean, I, I get what they're saying. It's sort of in the vein. It's sort of in the spirit of, you got this. You can do it. I, I get that. I think for Christians, it's sort of an allu- allusion to 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. You know that one, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who along with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may endure it. In other words, paraphrase that, you don't have to sin. Um, For those of us that are my generation or older, you might remember uh, Flip Wilson, the old comedian, and he had a a bit, and uh, golly, who was the woman that he would kind of do? Geraldine, Geraldine! say the devil made me do it and you know as christians we can't say the devil made me do it because of first corinthians 10 13 there's always a way to escape temptation through the power of god's holy spirit so i get that i i get that you don't have to sin i get that you got this i understand what people mean when they say god won't give you more than you can handle, but I'm here today to tell you God will give you more than you can handle. I won't reiterate it, but I shared with you all, if you were here last week or if you can't sleep, you can go to the website and listen to my sermon from last week online, and um, I I talked about some of the deep weeds that we've been through as a family 
with a daughter who is legally blind, a, a survivor of childhood cancer, all that. And so there's been a couple of seasons in my life where we have really been in the throes of it. And so people have uh, piled on this idea of God won't give you more than you can handle. And then they hear some of the things that, that we're going through or have been through. Perhaps this has handled, happened to you. And then they've said to me, oh, wow, God sure must think a whole lot of you. <laughs> to give you all that to, to deal with. Because the, their premise is God won't give you more than he can handle. And man, you got this, that, and oh my goodness. And I, I don't, again, I appreciate their heart in that, but I don't really accept that either. Um, I'm not some super saint. I'm not some super dad. You guys, because I'm new here, y'all only know me as uh, a pastor. But at the end of the day, I'm just Tom. When I stand before the throne um, I'll just be glad that my name is written in the book of life and there won't be MDiv or the fact that I didn't finish my demon uh, or, you know, after my name. I'm just Tom. Um, what about Paul's trials for the faith? I don't need you to turn there. Just, just listen to this. This is not our primary text today. But in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, where he is commending his ministry uh, to, to the church, for reasons I won't explain, he lists uh, some, of, some of the sufferings that he endured in his life. Listen to this. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Let's talk about that. 40 less one. What's that? 39. Five times he had that. Why 39? Because the thought was 40 lashes um, you've perhaps seen or heard about depictions of, of Christ's um, whipping, uh, his scourging, the flagellation, the flagellum, the whip, the cat of nine tails was a whip, and then at the end had various cords coming off it with bits of glass or stone or bone uh, tied or sewn into it. And so if you have a man who's been over and he's receiving that, whipping it is coming around it's grabbing it it's tearing his flesh open you're beating a man half to death it was called the half death 40 would kill you so they stopped at 39 three times i was beaten with rods once i was stoned three times i was shipwrecked a night and a day i was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers danger from robbers dangers from my own people dangers from the gentiles danger in the city danger in the wilderness danger at sea danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst often without food in cold and exposure and apart from other things there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Apart from other things, English Standard Version, uh, NAS puts it, apart from these merely external things. Okay, so Paul's got us all beat, right? We can, we can swap stories. I've told you mine because I know mine. I don't know your story yet. I'd like, to, I'd like to learn. But Paul's got us all beat. In terms of sufferings, there's a shorter uh, list of them in... Uh, this was 2 Corinthians 11, if you're curious. There's a shorter list in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 6 as well. Paul's got us all beat. 
So now as we turn to our primary text, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and I just need to tell you a little bit about the context, because we're just going to read a paragraph. But the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is comfort. In fact, it is my stock passage. It's my standard go-to. If you are in the hospital and, and I go and visit you, I'm going to quote 2 Corinthians 1. If you are, call me on the phone and say, Pastor, would you pray with me? I'm going to have a procedure tomorrow. I'm going, to, I'm going to refer to words from 2 Corinthians 1. It talks about the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies. And so the first part of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that's what it talks about. It mentions comfort ten times. So when I think of 2 Corinthians 1, that's what I think about is comfort. And yet, tucked away in the midst of this is this very revealing paragraph from the great apostle. Um, If you grab your sermon outline, you can turn it over to the back. You can look on your device. You can look in the pew Bible, whatever, whatever you want. But I love to give attention to the public reading of Scripture when we're gathered in worship. I believe in the centrality of the Word of God in our worship and in our preaching, uh, how firm a foundation, you know, we already sang. So here it is, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, a chapter about comfort. Here's verses 8 through 11. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come now and do that work that only you can do, which is to take your word, which has been preserved, so that in it, in these precious and magnificent promises, we have everything we need for faith and practice, everything we need to believe in Jesus and to walk with him. Would you now apply that uniquely to each one of our minds and hearts and lives as only you can, we pray, for your glory and for the building up of your people and that we might continue in the faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think of when you think of the Apostle Paul? Uh, You might think of the fact that before becoming the Apostle Paul, he was known as Saul. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a guy who used to round up Christians and throw them in jail, men, women, and children, throw them in jail, or even worse, see them put to death, right? Acts chapter 7, he's holding guys' jackets so they can stone um, 
Stephen, who was a deacon, sorry deacons, uh, he, so he could stone Stephen to death, the, the first Christian martyr. You might think of that when you think of the Apostle Paul. You might think of his sufferings. We, we just looked at them. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we listed, we rattled those off in short order. You might think of the fact that of the 27 books of the New Testament that he wrote about half of them. He wrote half of them. If you read the book of Acts, you might think about his dramatic uh, coming to Christ, Acts chapter 9. Um, and you might think about his missionary journeys, right? He went on at least three, maybe a fourth mis- missionary journey, uh, traveling all around the ancient, ancient Mediterranean world with various people from uh, Barnabas to uh, Timothy, Luke, um, others, and, and planting churches, going and planting churches. You might think about that when you think about Paul. In my humble and accurate opinion... He was the greatest Christian to ever live. I mean, one time he got, he got stoned. He was, he was preaching and they stoned him. They dragged him out of town and left him for dead. And he was a, unconscious or whatever. He was revived by the Holy Spirit. He got back up and he went in and preached some more. He is the greatest Christian that ever lived. He was a pioneering fire-breathing, ground-breaking, missionary apostle. He was the greatest Christian who ever lived. And he despaired even of life itself. And I don't think that that is something that we usually associate with bold, brash, outspoken Paul. He despaired even of life itself. He says here he was burdened excessively. He was weighed down. Uh, Think of a uh, donkey or a pack mule, a a horse. I don't know if there's horses up in this land here, but uh, uh, that that you would load up with gear. Uh, Maybe maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon and you've taken one of those excursions down into the canyon and you get a beast of burden, not the Rolling Stones song. You get a beast of burden, you put all this stuff on him, but maybe you, maybe you pile it on, there's too much, and the animal just collapses, falls to its knees under the load. That is what Paul says happened to him here. He was overloaded. One source I consulted describes this as the mental oppression in which the thought of inevitable, uh, in which the thought of inevitable death occasions. Mental oppression. He says it was beyond our strength, above our ability, and it resulted in despair. To be despairing before the Lord is utterly at a loss, without resources, completely exposed, seemingly having no way out, having no hope. He says that he was under the sentence of death. Now, if I had time, I would tell you about, there are three instances in my life, maybe we'll do this in Sunday school next week, three instances in my life where I literally thought, this is it. I am going to die. And Paul, whatever was going on with him, that's what he thought. In Psalm 107, I always read Psalm 107 uh, right prior to Thanksgiving. And uh, it, it talks about people in various 
difficulties in life and how the Lord led them through. And in verse 27, it talks about those who are at their wit's end. You and I might say, at the end, I'm at, I'm at the end of my rope here. The kids are driving me crazy today, or you know, whatever it is. I, I'm, I'm at the end of my rope. My resources have been taxed. I'm, I'm utterly exhausted. I, I got nothing here. All my wisdom is swallowed up. This word despair is only used in two places in the Greek New Testament. Here in our paragraph in chapter 1, and in one of the two paragraphs that Nancy already read for us in chapter 4. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Paul, the greatest Christian ever, despaired even of life itself. And on top of that, verse two, uh, point 2, sub-point 2 under letter A in your outline, he shared this fact with others, with his brothers. By the, word, by the way, the, the Greek word adelphoi is meant to include women too. It's often translated brothers, but it means brothers and sisters. He shared this fact with the church there at Corinth. He said, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be without knowledge. One commentator notes that the Corinthian Christians were ignorant not of the character, but of the intensity of Paul's affliction. So they were aware of some of the stuff that he went through, but not how bad it got for him. And they prayed for him. Verse 11. They prayed for him. Now, a few quick points about prayer. This is not a sermon on prayer, but it is mentioned here, so I'll just make a couple of quick points. Uh, it's, prayer is sort of a mystery, but first of three points. One, it helps. It helps. Now, with that said... You know, sometimes in the church we say, well, do you, do you believe in the power of prayer? Well, yeah, yeah, I think a little more precisely. I believe in the power of God, right? It's not that prayer is this remote, uh, separated thing. Oh, there's power in prayer. No, no, there's power in God. And the way we access that is through prayer. And Paul testifies here that the prayers of others, the prayers of a people the prayers of a local church are effective and help and make a difference. It helps. Second point about prayer is it brings blessing. It bestows favor and grace. He says so right here in our paragraph. And third thing I would say about prayer in brief is that God has appointed the prayers of his people. God has appointed the prayers of his people. Um, one commentator says this about prayer. Its function is precisely to emphasize the utter dependence and resourcelessness of man and the absolute sovereignty of the Father of mercies. That's what prayer is. We cast ourselves upon God. We say, Lord, I got nothing here. I, I, I need your resources. Uh, prayer is effective. Why, you know, it's a great study. D.A. Carson has a, a, a book and a video series, if you can find it. It's called Praying with Paul. It's been renamed once or twice, but Praying with Paul. It, you, you don't even need D.A. Carson stuff. Just look at his prayer, his prayers for others in Ephesians and in Colossians in particular. How he prayed for people 
And when we look at how he prayed for others, it seems to me that it tends to be a lot different than many of our prayers for others. In brief, I'll just say this. How do we pray? Lord, change my circumstances, change my circumstances, change my circumstances. How does Paul pray? Lord, give them strength, give them knowledge of you, give them endurance, give them insight into your riches so it will sustain them in their faith. That's how he prays for people. Anyway, he shared the fact that he despaired with others. The purpose of suffering, just in Sunday school last hour, we were talking about when you're going through difficulties, and by the way, what we're doing for Sunday school for this month is we're talking about the sermon from the previous week. So next week in Sunday school, we're going to talk about Paul. Today we talked about David from last Sunday. And love to have you come out and join us. We had a good gathering, a good conversation this morning. Uh, We talked about in Sunday school that when you're going through hard things, it's helpful to know that God has a purpose. And we mentioned that many places in the New Testament, it, it talks about knowing that God is doing something. What does our primary text here say? Whoops. I don't know, because I just dropped it. Um, When he says that he despaired, in the middle of verse 9, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. So he understands that there was purpose, and is whatever you want to call them, trials, tribulations, travails, whatever, there was a purpose to them. He wasn't just left to blind fate or, or chaos in the universe or whatever. The Lord of glory has purpose for it so that he would trust him. And I would ask you this morning, who do you rely on? Who do you trust? Yourself or God? Ephesians, where, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, where it talks about the full armor of God and spiritual warfare. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so many of us have this idea that the Christian life is something that we just somehow, yeah, God saved us, he gave us grace on the day of salvation, and then the rest of it, we're on our own. We're left to do just the best we can to pull ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps, and as Dale Ralph Davis says, we're slogging through the paths of righteousness. We're kind of gutting it out in the flesh on our own. No, that's not God's plan. It's that we would rely on him. Be strong in the strength of his might. I have two questions for you this morning. They're not in your notes. Number one is, who are you trusting in to get to heaven? Who are you trusting in to get to heaven first? And, And what I mean by that is, there was a time in my life before I came to know the Lord And if you were to ask me that question that is sometimes still bandied around in Christian circles and Presbyterian circles, um, if you're familiar with the the ministry or program Evangelism Explosion, starred by Presbyterians, by the way. And and one of the questions is, if God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? If God were to say to you, why should I let you in, what would you say? And there was a point in my life as a young, uh, a young person in high school that I would have said something to this effect. Because, uh, well, you know, God, I'm, you know my heart, you know, I'm sincere, and, and yeah, I like to party, 
uh, but I don't deliberately hurt people, and I've never committed uh, uh, murder or, you know, raped and pillaged, you know, the really bad, terrible things. That was my rationale. That was my basis for which I thought that maybe I deserved admittance to heaven. Who does it sound like I was trusting in at that time in my life? I have helped little old ladies cross the street. I'm sincere. I'm a nice guy. I haven't done this or that. Who am I trusting in? Myself. Who should we be trusting in to get us to heaven? Christ. Jesus Christ. And God who raises the dead. So my first question for you today is, who are you trusting in to get you to heaven? Now, some of you are sitting there in the pews this morning, and you're going, yeah, 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 we know that stuff. We've been here a long long time before you hit town, buddy. (laughs) Tell me something I haven't already heard. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. So I'd ask you then, second, who are you trusting in to live the Christian life? If you know the Lord Jesus, and you're not trusting in yourself and trying to earn God's favor or earn approval by improving the moral fiber of your life by doing more good things than bad things. You know that. Jesus is your Savior and Lord. Who are you trusting in to live the Christian life? As I said, sometimes we're doing it in our own strength. We're gutting it out in the flesh, and that makes Paul elsewhere really mad. In the book of Galatians, he says to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun by the Spirit, are you being perfected by the flesh? In other words, you trust in God for salvation, admittance to heaven, if you will, forgiveness of sins, and you trust in God who raises the dead to live the Christian life. Both of them. And we, like Paul, have the hope of deliverance. We're on letter A uh, in, in your outline. God will give you more than you can handle. And we have the hope of deliverance. And what is Christian hope? In brief, it is active waiting. It is active waiting. It's not worldly hope. Worldly hope is wishful thinking. In, in other words, it's really, it's really uncertain. You know, who is your team? The, the, let's see, the Bears are out of it, right? And so some of y'all are wishing I would get on with it so we could, the Packers, let's go with the Packers, okay? So um, I hope the Packers win the Super Bowl again. But you have no idea how it's going to come out. That's not biblical hope. That is not Christian hope. Biblical hope is not pie in the sky, maybe so, wouldn't that be nice? Biblical hope is the confident expectation of a promised reality that will be delivered. We have the hope of deliverance. Paul says so over and over in this passage. On him we have set our hope. Look how many times it talks about deliverance. He delivered us. He will deliver us. He'll deliver us again. Verse 10. And so on him we have set our hope, our confident expectation. Hope of deliverance. Now deliverance, particularly in the Old Testament, a little bit in the New, a lot of times means to be spared from death. 
and to, say, to be saved out of your circumstances with a nod to ultimate salvation in the Lord. A lot in the New Testament, more commonly when it talks about salvation and deliverance, it's talking about our eternal salvation. By the way, if, if you know Greek, the word here is not sozo, but it's, it, it's ruomai, which means to be snatched out, rescued, drawn to one, oneself. Three times it talks about deliverance here in verse 10. Past, present, and future. Past saved from temporal trouble. The affliction in Asia that he mentions in verse 8. We don't know exactly what that was. You go back and you read in um, Acts and Paul's preaching and he starts a riot, right? Uh, Because he's preaching about Christ, him crucified and risen. And people don't like that. It's bad for business. The merchants who make and sell these little, uh, or the silver idols to the goddess Artemis. And for hours they start chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And it starts a riot and they haul, Paul is brought into protective custody for his own safety. Now maybe that's what he's talking about here. I, I, I don't know, it doesn't matter. But hope of deliverance. The past, saved from temporal trouble. The present, Look at verse 9. We rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Present tense and with future implications, ongoing. Not who raised the dead, past tense, Jesus, but who raises the dead, you and me. People want to see miracles. They say, well, you know, I read the Bible, and isn't that nice how Jesus was kind to people and held hands with the bunnies and made daisy chains? Isn't that all nice? And, you know, that's really cool about how, you know, he healed the blind and all all this kind of stuff. Pastor, when's the last time you healed somebody who was sick or lame, made him walk again? They say, I haven't done that. Well, I'm not very impressed. God who raises the dead. God who takes those who are spiritually dead in their sins and trespasses. He makes them alive together with Christ. You want to see signs? You want to see miracles? He still does it every day. He makes dead people like you and me come to life. He makes us new creatures in Christ. That's the gospel. Hope of deliverance, the past, the present. He raises the dead still, the future. Ultimate deliverance, eternal life. We're going to look at two cross-references. Nancy already read them for us. I told you that despair is a rare word only used twice in the New Testament, only by Paul, only in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 1 we already looked at. Chapter 4 Nancy already read. What does it say? For your convenience, it's on the back of your outline in the middle of the page. I put it in bold for you. We have this treasure in jars of clay Vessels of Mercy. I think that's where the band got their name. Jars of Clay. I like them. Um, We're afflicted in every way, not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. So in chapter 1, we've got the great apostle, the greatest Christian who ever lived, saying we despaired even of life itself. We thought we were going to die. And then by chapter 4, he says, we're crushed, not we're afflicted, not crushed, perplexed, not driven to despair. So which is it, buddy? Make up your mind. 
Well, there's a little play on words in the, in the Greek. Uh, the words for perplexed and despair have the same root. So that's part of what he's doing here. But he's saying that if he's to be honest with these people, and he is, our hearts are open wide, O Corinthians, open wide to us in like exchange. He says, you know, there was a point at which I despaired but I continue in the faith, chapter 4, because I've learned to rely on God who raises the dead. And I keep going, not gutting it out in the flesh in my own strength, but abiding in Christ and the power of God and the hope of the gospel and the hope of deliverance, being strong in the strength of his might. And that helps me not to give up because of the genuine hope of the gospel. And so I would ask you today, what is your... What is your power for living? First bullet point under letter B, jars of clay. What is your power for living? Verse 6, we're in the middle of the uh, 2 Corinthians 4, middle of the page on the back. Verse 7 is where we pick up. Verse 6 talks about the God of all creation who said, let there be light. And he, he, he does a work in our hearts. He lets... The light of Christ shine in our hearts. What is your power for living? The power has surpassing greatness. It's beyond measure. It's beyond all comparison. And notice also in this middle paragraph on the back of your outline how we have the life of Jesus. It says it two times in verses 10 and 11. We have the life of Jesus living in and through us. He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also. In Hebrews, it talks about the risen Savior as the one who has the power of an indestructible life. And that phrase has stuck with me ever since I preached through that book some years ago. The power of an indestructible life. In Acts 2, it says, God raised him up again, putting an end of the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then inner renewal. Inner renewal from the next paragraph from 2 Corinthians 4. It's on the uh, back of your outline at the bottom. Don't lose heart. It's also in verse 1 and other places of the New Testament. Don't grow faint. Don't grow weary. It's in Galatians. Don't grow weary in well-doing for in due time we shall reap. Gather a hard a harvest. Look at the deliberate contrast. I put it in the form of a chart in your outline. The deliberate contrast that Paul sets up. Down one column, momentary light affliction. Down the other, eternal weight of glory. Momentary. Only place this word shows up in the Greek New Testament. It's immediate. It's at that very instant. Versus eternal, unending, everlasting, unceasing. That's a deliberate contrast the apostle sets up here. And light versus weight. Light, easy to bear. Not excessively burdened. Remember what Paul said in our primary passage? He was so utterly burdened beyond his own strength. We talked about that pack horse breaking down under the load. But here he describes it as, as, as light, easy to bear. What does Jesus say in Matthew 11? 
Come, all, come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. If you come to him. Versus the weight, that which, is, that which has gravitas, that which is substantial. It's vast and transcendent. And then he contrasts, last, affliction versus glory. Affliction, those tribulations, all the hard stuff that Paul had walked through. All the internal pressure, all of the anguish of heart. Remember that? You know, so he's, he's beaten within an inch of his life repeatedly. He's shipwrecked. All this stuff happens, and he says, apart from these merely external things, I've got the daily pressure of concern for all the churches. I've got concern for one church right now, and it's more than I can handle. How about you and your life? Well, God won't give you more than you can handle, friend. Yes, he will. He'll do it on purpose. He's trying to teach you something. He's trying to cause you to rely on God who raises the dead still today. The thing about momentary light affliction is when you're going through it, it seems neither momentary nor light, does it? You all walk, you are here. You walked with Pastor Eric and Elizabeth through that. Momentary? Light? My mother's last decade riddled with strokes. My daughter right now in a season where she's had 14 eye surgeries under anesthesia. And that young woman of faith who rarely complains, who's the most resilient person I've ever known, about three times a year she will say, I can't wait until heaven when I receive my glorified body and I have perfect vision. And about twice a year, she just breaks down. She says, I feel like we're caught in a cycle of never-ending surgeries, and I just can't get out of it. But then she recalls these things to mind, and she continues. She continues in life. She continues in the faith. She continues in the Lord. She continues in God's word. She continues in the church. Momentary light affliction seems neither momentary nor light when you're going through it. So your last bullet point is the key is to keep an eternal perspective. The key is to keep an eternal perspective. It it seems neither momentary nor light when you're going through it. But when you realize that God is training you to rely on him, and there are resources available to you now, and when you realize the hope, not pie in the sky, not wishful thinking, that's what unbelievers think us, we Christians, think about heaven. Oh, isn't that nice? They tell themselves that about heaven because they're afraid to die, and it makes them feel better. No. We have the confident expectation that God will deliver on what he has promised just as he always has. And that gives us the endurance to keep going in life.
One commentator says, Christian suffering, however protracted it may be, is only for this present life, which when compared with the everlasting ages of the glory to which it is leading is but a passing moment. It it pales in comparison. Let's pray. Lord, we have need of endurance. We need to continue in the things that we have learned. When we encounter obstacles and, and difficult circumstances and trials, we don't need to give up. We don't need to go away from you. We need to go to you. When we blow it in sin, whatever that is, losing our temper, whatever, we need quickly to flee to the foot of the cross and embrace the forgiveness that is already ours in Christ. And then we need you to lift us up and give us vitality and stamina and strength from your Holy Spirit to keep going. And we pray for that in Jesus' name.